Alrighty, g'day, good evening. It's not even evening yet, it's actually earlier today. I did start a little bit earlier today because it's a Friday evening where I want to go and watch a movie. So we're actually going, I've pre-purchased Fast and Furious 9. So our evening tonight is going to be sitting there watching Fast and Furious 9. But because I'm a morning person and we go to bed early all the time, I have to start the movie early. So I have to do this early. Minor details. Don't worry too much about that. G'day people joining. G'day Burton. First in again. Well done, mate. <laughs> Philip, g'day from the UK. Oh, where do we begin? Where do we begin? I would normally do the sponsor thing. I'm going to talk about the sponsor later on. I'm going to talk about one password later on because I've got a blog post related to them as well. I did put in my little list of uh, things I should chat about here, though, um, 3D rockets. So, <laughs> unfortunately, not the kind that actually goes up in the air. We have been getting a little bit carried away with, uh, with some of the 3D printing. I'm just going to tweet here, now live. Now, in all honesty, it's probably me who's been getting carried away with some of the 3D printing. But there's a, a site called Fab, Fab 360. It is 360, not 365, isn't it? Where is it? Fab 365. Fab365.net. And they've got these really, really epic models that you buy, and they're only a few bucks each, but the quality is just off the charts. So behind me, for those of you with video, is a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. I'm going to carry it over because this thing's massive. This is cool. So, this has been the printing exercise for a large part of the last week, which is kind of cool too because like the feet actually go and collapse like this you know how it does that kind of landing thing where it can come back down again uh, and then the little dragon capsule at the top it's it's super super geeky i know but it has been a lot of fun and it's obviously i'll just leave that there it's obviously taken quite a bit to print because there are a lot of different parts on it uh, and and a bunch of these parts do get glued together once they come out but they're like little tiny bits of super glue so that has just been like a i don't know like an entertaining thing and that will then sort of sit down there, probably near the 3D printer rather than in my office. And everyone can walk past and see the 3D printer and go, oh, it's amazing, did you print that? And it's a really conversation starter. So that was being on the 3D printing. Uh, my office looks a little bit different at the moment. I have no curtains, which is an unfortunate time to do this recording a little bit earlier. I know there's a heap of light before or behind me, rather. Uh, I think tomorrow, Saturday, I might have some more curtains coming. Uh, in fact, some of the frames here you might notice have been painted black. So this is basically like a work-in-progress office at the moment to try and make it work much better for the things I do, particularly as it comes to things like sound. So the curtains will just be much, much better for absorbing sound. The wall in front of me will have sound material on it, sound-absorbing material. Some on the wall behind as well. So uh, bear with me whilst the office is a little bit of a mess. Uh, Burton, are you going to launch the rocket? It's all plastic, mate. So, so no, no, that one's not going anywhere. Um, that is a uh, well and truly ground-born rocket. Other things. What else happened? I got my MVP stuff this week, my MVP kit, which is cool because this is now the 11th one of these, which has arrived. I am now in developer technologies. Was developer security back in the day, but they merged it with some stuff. And I, I used to sort of frame all of these, and I get them in a nice frame and I put them on the wall. But there's a point, and I think the point is 11. There's a point at which you just end up with way too much stuff on the wall. So I'm thinking about 
thinking about what to do with this, particularly as I redesign and, and reorg the office, but time will tell on that one. Let me talk about some data breachy stuff. I have a feeling today is going to go really fast, actually, but uh, that's fine. I can go watch Fast and Furious earlier. Some data breachy stuff. T-Mobile. So T-Mobile has been massively in the news this week with their breach. Uh, and it does seem like a whopper. I've got a Krebs piece just here, 40 million people. I mean, 40 million is large as a data breach, but I think what's really making this one grab the headlines is social security numbers. Good on you, Americans, for still having social security numbers that you keep putting in data breaches and then using for authentication factors. Not such a great thing. Dates of birth as well, another thing that we often use for knowledge-based authentication. So, yeah, that's there as well. Uh, T-Mobile have acknowledged it as well, which is which is always interesting. Sometimes these things just sort of float out there for a while without the company saying one thing or the other. They say our preliminary analysis, our preliminary analysis is that approximately 7.8 million current T-Mobile postpaid customers' accounts information appears to be contained in stolen files, as well as just over 40 million records of former or prospective customers who had applied for credit with T-Mobile. Why do you need social security numbers for T-Mobile? Maybe because it's a telco and they need to be able to trace you back to an in-person. Intrusion first came to light on Twitter when account Undoxed started tweeting the details of someone on a cybercrime forum who began selling what they claimed were roughly 100 million freshly hacked records from T-Mobile. Oh. It, is, uh, it is fascinating, isn't it? So... This, uh, this account has been tweeting a bunch of stuff about various T-Mobile-related things. Um, their pinned tweet here is from five days ago. You heard it here first. T-Mobile got destroyed on Org5. We have the next Talk Talk, ladies and gentlemen. So Talk Talk, for those of you who maybe can't remember, was the UK telco. 2015, I think, Talk Talk got very hack-hacked a uh, long time ago. Anyway, so that one does seem to be legitimate uh, credit monitoring for all coming from them. So good on them for that. Um, there appears to be some infighting as I read through this thread here. Um, and then we sort of lead into something else related but less verified. And this is where I think the infighting goes, which is an AT&T breach. So... There is an alleged, alleged breach of AT&T. It doesn't appear that we've had any confirmations yet. Uh, now, I saw this news uh, first today, my time. Where would this be? About 10 hours ago. So, Alon Gell, under the breach, is Alon Gell. He's a fairly well-known security person on Twitter. Says, Shiny Hunters, a threat actor behind the Tokopedia breach and many other breaches, is claiming to sell AT&T's database containing 70 million social security numbers and other personal information. They've proven they have the capability for these sorts of breaches. This is big. Ask for $1 million. It's a lot of money. It's quite interesting too, because as you scroll down through this thread, uh, under the breach says... The threat actor is indicating that if they will be able to sell the databases, it will not be leaked. So, why not? Well, first of all, you want someone to pay a whole bunch of money for it. You can't then go away and give it for free. It doesn't do a lot for your credibility. Second of all, and this is kind of the shitty thing about it, the 
more broadly data circulates, the less valuable it is because more people, not only do more people have it, so it's harder to monetize it as a whole sort of scarcity factor thing, but there's also the whole thing about once that starts circulating more and people know that their data is exposed and are not what was exposed, they will take preventative measures. They'll change their password. I'm not sure that passwords are actually part of this here. Or they will go and get identity theft or they will look out for people trying to sim swap them or something like that. So inevitably there is value from tightly held data and that seems to be where these guys are going here. Um, now there's a bit of a I'm not sure how much I can talk about here. I'm just seeing an interesting nuance here. So Lawrence Abrams from Bleeping Computer here says, um, uh, what else happened here? She says, Shiny Hunters. Shiny Hunters, of course, is threat actor who is a, either a person or a collective of people. Shiny Hunters deleted the thread, so maybe BS. Uh, I have heard something about why that thread may have been deleted, but I just don't know that I can see it here anywhere in the thread. Now, somehow these two worlds are then collided and for reasons that are not entirely clear to me we've got undoxed chiming in on a thread about the shiny hunters one so remember undox is the is the t-mobile chiming in on the thread about at&t uh, and then somehow being misattributed as somehow being responsible for this as well now jeremy kirk a journo down here in australia says so uh, so far, striking out on trying to confirm the claimed AT&T breach. No word from AT&T yet. But here's some preliminary analysis. I've called the phone numbers in the sample. One number had a new owner, but hung up after I tried to ask when the number switched. It's always a bit hard for a journo, isn't it? A journo's calling someone up out of the blue and it's like, hey, your data's floating around the dark web. And this is not like me reaching out to have a been parent subscriber. This is just him calling a phone number. And the person's like, hung up. Anyway, he goes on. I didn't know this was in here, but the next tweet's got half of a component. Other numbers appear to be disconnected. Three out of four email addresses in the sample bounced back. Three out of four email addresses have appeared in numerous breaches before, according to have I been pwned. The one below is in 13. It's just a .NET TLD in there. I'm learning as I go here. I haven't read Jeremy's thread. Three more tweets. Johnny Hunter says there are 70 million records. The group put 28 million records that they claim to be from AT&T up for sale last year. The 70 million batch includes those 28 million. They say the 28 million batch didn't sell. Maybe AT&T records aren't worth that much. Not much to call this either way at this point. The sample feels old to me, but that doesn't mean it's not what it purports to be. At least from the T-Mobile breach, we know that some companies hold onto data for longer than they should. Some. You reckon, Jeremy? I think it's more than some. AT&T is a comment now. Based on our investigations today, the information appears to be in an internet chat room does not appear to have come from our systems. Now, we have heard that before too, and it's been bullshit. But we don't know here if it's bullshit or if it's just like, yeah, it's just literally not from their systems. So a little bit earlier, I do find it curious, the timing, because there's so much chatter about T-Mobile. So why is there so much chatter about T-Mobile? And then suddenly, like, whilst there's all this excitement about big telcos with large numbers and social security numbers, suddenly there's this bit about AT&T, particularly if some of this data was old. So maybe they're just trying to, I guess, uh, ride off the excitement, for want of a better term, of telcos being breached. 
We've got the comments here. Nick007, from memory, last time I was in the US, they wanted a social security number even for a local prepaid SIM. It took me a good 10 minutes to convince them that I didn't have one. You know, like, all right, I was going to say it's just an American thing. It's not just an American thing. There are national government identifiers in other parts of the world. The one that comes to mind, I'm pretty sure Thailand has one. I think South Africa does. In fact, I know South Africa does because I dealt with them in the master deeds data breach. And there... Uh, their identifiers also had other uh, information and it wasn't just like an incrementing number, other information indicating other things about them. Go and read that blog post, another story. Voice of Memdello is in Senegal. Cool. Not been there. All right, let's move on to something a bit happier. One password. So one password is, first of all, up on the sponsor bar this week. So kudos to one password. Secondly, my last blog post was about 1Password. So we have been creating for quite some many months a series called Hello CISO. We just haven't spoken about it until now. And this series is that camera sitting here pointing at me in this room talking about different things that are not just relevant to CISOs. They're relevant to people in all sorts of different InfoSec roles. And I would argue relevant to people beyond just that InfoSec scope as well. So part one has just dropped. It is uh, the downfall of on-premise security. Now, when I say dropped, it is literally just a YouTube video. Anyone can go and watch it for free right now. And I, I sort of said in the, in the blog post I wrote about this, uh, it's free. And when I say free, I don't mean give us your personal data so we can market to you. I mean, here it is. It's properly free. Like <laughs> Here's the video. So I really like the fact that... Uh, that 1Password is making this available to everyone without trying to capture information. And, and look, I, I understand the companies that do. They're, they're trying to run a business and they want to get leads and all the rest of it. 1Password does very, very much position themselves as a privacy-centric organization and they do live by those values. So good on them for that. Now, what is in the video? Good question. It's the first one I did and it was a long time ago. Now, <laughs> when I say long time ago, it's when did I do that? I don't know, five months ago, something like that. It was earlier this year. But the general gist of it is, is that our view of on-premise security has really, really changed over the years. So if you think back, it depends on how old you are, or how long you've been doing this. But if, if you think back, there was a time when it's like, uh, we're in the network now, like we've gone to work, we're in the network, all of the good stuff is in here and the bad stuff is out there. Bad is out there, good is in here. Uh, we can be really relaxed with our internal security because the baddies are out there. Uh, also, all of our internal stuff just stays internal. It doesn't go anywhere. And then people started bringing like USB sticks to work and messing that right up because they'd bring the USB stick to work and then they put the corporate documents on and just <laughs> like walk out the door. Like This is a big problem. Some companies were literally gluing up USB sockets on PCs so that people couldn't do that. So that kind of made things difficult. And then, you know, let's say for, for the sake of simplicity, that was 20 years ago. And then we sort of fast forward another decade and people start bringing these bloody mobile phones and things in. So now people have got connected supercomputers in their pockets inside the perimeter. And they're bringing stuff in through these connected supercomputers that don't go through the corporate firework and this oh, firework firewall. <laughs> I've seen some fireworks in some corporates. Firewall. And... This is coming into the environment and, of course, exfiltrating stuff back out as well. A lot of stuff leaves the organization through things like mobile devices. And then to make things even more messy as well, we, we go a little bit further and now we've got cloud. 
and it's cloud everywhere and particularly now when everyone's kind of rushing to be able to be productive when they're not inside the perimeter cloud is like that double-edged sword where it's like hey it's amazing you can do all this stuff so fast and cheap and screw it up so fast and cheap and I think I've got an example in there. It's, it's something like, you know, Bob in sales. Like Bob in sales like just wants to have the modern equivalent of Bob in sales building an access database 20 years ago. I had to clean up a lot after those. Uh, and Bob's just trying to solve a problem, right? Like Bob just wants to get his work done. But what ends up happening is you end up with this corporate information created via shadow IT, so outside the formal constructs uh, of the IT department. And very often it doesn't have the same security controls or privacy controls or the same controls around who might be able to see that information. And, of course, in cloud now, it's just so easy to go, hey, I'm going to, if it's not like spinning up I as a PaaS or something like that, it's I'm going to spin up an online service. Uh, I would like to start using Zoom for all our meetings. So how many people got Zoom bombed? I would like to use something like, let's say, fragments sake, a Trello for plan all of our super secret company things because Trello is cool but it is outside the perimeter and then all of the traditional sort of thinking about the good stuff in here and the bad stuff out there just goes out the window so that's the general gist of part one now I can't remember what's in part two it's different <laughs> you'll get to it it's going to be a surprise for me as well as it progresses this is edited up as well. It's not just me talking nonstop for, how long is this one? Like 10 minutes or something? Let's have a look. 10 minutes and 20 seconds. So it is something that you can absorb in sort of bite-sized pieces. One password has done it, uh, obviously, for free, like proper free, and put it out to everyone. So as well as being a sponsor, and I am still on their board of advisors as well, just full disclosure, uh, they are doing really, really cool stuff, and I appreciate them putting that out there for everyone. I'm glad to see what I've been spending so much time working on is actually now out there as well. Okay, last thing, last thing on the list. And if everyone has any questions, just drop them in there in the chat, but about this or anything else. Uh, last thing on the list was I have made a, a fundamental change to my IoT approach for the Shelleys. Now, if we go back a little bit, the Shelleys are the internet relays they sit behind your light switches so that you can use your normal switches on the wall and if you like your normal lights as well and you can turn them on and off with the normal switch and you can do them all digitally via either the Shelly app or home assistant or anything else that can talk mqtt or http based api to the Shelleys. and where it gets a bit interesting is what about like in in my office here so i've got a total of four lights on the wall there and they are IoT lights. They're IoT in that they are Wi-Fi connected. They can change color and they can change brightness. And I want them to be IoT because I do want to be able to change the colors. Now, if I turn the power off on the wall and these don't have any more power, then I can't go through and change the color. I can't change the brightness. I can't do anything like that. And you might be going, well, it's turned off. Why would you want to do that? Well, I want to be able to say turn them on to a particular color. Uh, now to do that, I need to have them connected to the internet. So that would be that would sort of be the first thing there. Um, my thinking was to leave everything always on. So obviously the Shelly's always on. It's powered. All the lights are always on, and then the Shelly becomes what's called a detached switch. So when you flick the switch on the wall, you are not changing the power to the circuit. All you're actually doing is 
you are raising an event. And then you pick that event up in Home Assistant and then you have a little automation somewhere that says, hey, the switch on the wall's just been toggled. And then you can go, okay, we'll toggle the lights that they're logically attached to. So you're not actually closing and changing circuits. You're just raising events. Now, I had multiple problems with that. And the, the first one is, is that because I've got so many IoT things in here, <laughs> the, the network is getting a little bit flooded with broadcast traffic. So I was up to about 165 connected devices. Uh, and that is a lot of chatter. And I had a lot of chats with the Ubiquiti people about sort of how to deal with this. And uh, a large part of it was maybe you just need to have less stuff <laughs> on your network because that is causing some problems. So by leaving the power off on the Shelly, let's say when I, I haven't done it to this room yet, but other parts of the house, if I leave the power off on the Shelly, then these four lights, they drop off the network. Four less things communicating over the network. So that was number one. Number two is that there are various lights on my network that don't have great Wi-Fi signal. For example, I've got one down on my jetty next to my boat, which is quite some distance to the house. And when I was using the old methodology of like edge switch, toggle this, and then just IoT turn the lights on, very often that light and others, which is some distance from Wi-Fi access points, just weren't turning on, weren't turning off. And that is kind of annoying because like lights should be simple. Flick the switch, it goes off. Flick it again, it goes on. Now that was bugging me. By doing it this way and killing the power, so long as the lights can return to the last state. So for example, these have got seven different colors. So long as I can kill the power and then come back tomorrow, turn it back on again, and they come back with the same color, that is fine. And all the ones I've got here do. So that, that's not a problem. Uh, so there's that. Now the other problem is, is that even when everything works perfectly, because all of these two-year lights are cloud-dependent, when you say turn off the light, you're going up to the cloud somewhere in China, I assume, to you being a Chinese company. Not that they care too much about the fact that they're from China. It's more about the fact that we've got a little latency from here to China. So there was always a bit of a delay. Like you'd flick the switch and lights would just go boop, 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 boop. You know, things are coming on bit by bit. So that wasn't real good. Now, this solves all of those problems. Uh, so, for example, and I just saw a comment there about light and stuff starting to come in here. The sun is setting here. And because the sun is setting, every single one of my Shelleys in here, which is part of like my sunset automation, has just powered on. And all of the lights attached to them have just powered on. So I've suddenly got all of these devices like waking up and connecting to the network. Now, that's, that's fine. But before they did that, if I was to look at the two-year app, it would say everything's offline. If I was to look at Home Assistant, every one of those apps is offline. Any of those apps, every one of those lights is offline because they now no longer have a connection. I think this is going to be a better way forward. I'm just going to sort of sit on it for a while and see, and I'll let you know. But I think that it just, it just nails every one of those objectives much, much better than the old way because the old way just had too many inconsistencies, particularly with things not coming on immediately and then a bunch of stuff not actually being accessible over the Wi-Fi. Now, let me see the comments here. Okay, Borgie is very chatty. Hello, <laughs> Kay Borgie. Um, let me get to a question here. Stuart, curious. If you're doing the Shelleys from scratch, would you have gone with something like Sonoff, Zigbee, rather than IP-based? I think... Well, first of all, I wouldn't have gone Sonoff because they're not licensed to use here in Australia. So, no. <laughs> Unless it's changed recently. But it's something that Lars learned out the hard way. So, Lars Clint, 
uh, bought us bought it. I think he bought several Sonoffs, and he was like, "Oh, cool! Look what I just bought." And I was like, "Have you actually checked that they are they are approved for use in Australia?" And and they weren't. And he had to send them back and, and get Shelleys. Um, the Shelleys, for the most part, are very reliable. It, it is really cool being able to open up a browser and being able to go to a Shelley over HTTP and actually pull back statuses and things like that via a nice little RESTful API. I don't have an issue with that. I do find them very, very responsive. Um, Zigbee, because the Shelleys are also totally local control and there is no external dependency, I'm just not sure there's a good enough reason to go Zigbee there. The other thing is, is that all the Shelleys are in places that are pretty close to the Wi-Fi signal. Lights, you might end up with a light like some distance away from the switch, but all the switches are pretty much within the walls of the house. So the Wi-Fi coverage is better as well. So I, I don't have a, a bad thing to say about the coverage on the Shelleys, Stuart. Uh, okay, Borgie, what are Shelleys? They're the IoT relays, so they're the little, they're the size of an Oreo biscuit. Uh, I think they said two Oreo biscuits. Anyway, they're little things you can fit them behind a switch so that when you toggle the switch on and off, they raise, uh, they raise events, and you can also toggle the switch on and off digitally. Have a Google, Shelleys. Check the, the spelling from someone else there. It's got an SH. Um, what else we got in here? Uh, okay, Stuart's answered Shelley, uh, <laughs> Shelley's question. Kay Borgie's question. Thank you. Philip says, the delay sounds like an old-fashioned TV. When you switch that off, it used to get that little small dot before going off. Yeah, it was like those, were they like vacuum tubes or something? But it was, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't a, a good experience, was it? Not compared to what we have here today. So anyway, I think that this this is the path forward. There's a question here. What beer are we drinking today? Uh, this is a Pirate Life uh, summer, summer Ale, I think it was. Uh, a very light, refreshing ale. I felt like something light. Which is what I needed after some of the other stuff that I bought, recommended off Facebook the other day. What was it called? I'll tell you, I'll tell you if you really want a beer that you remember. Uh, F118 Beer, was that it? Yeah, FA18 Rhino. Uh, I think there's, there's four eyes here in IPA. Anyway, it was 18%. <laughs> I was like, I just, just out of curiosity, just out of curiosity, I want to see what that feels like. So I had one. Charlotte tried it. She said it, it felt like she was drinking barbecue sauce. So um, probably won't be ordering that one again, but at least now I've done it. I've tried it. I can go, all right, I've had a go of that. Joel says, damn it, you got me hooked on Darknet Diaries podcast. Darknet Diaries is uh, epic. It is really, really good. So if you haven't seen Darknet Diaries before, uh, it's a podcast run by a guy called Jack Resider. It is, it's so good that I always enjoy listening to it myself. I was listening to some of it today while I was riding my bike. And the kids love it as well. My nine-year-old daughter and my 11-year-old son, That they often say, hey, can we listen to Darknet Diaries? So the infosec stories, they're just beautifully put together and jack does an amazing job so good good uh good on them uh robert cook you looked into the matter standard i'm not sure what that is robert could you clarify that for me k borgie says not long island i see no it's 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 not that would be that would be another very strong thing um Karthik says, are you not concerned about any of these IP devices being vulnerable to being hijacked for botnets, etc., especially if they need public network access to work? 
I wrote a five-part IoT series. If you Google my name and IoT, you'll find it. And I think part three was about security. And look, there are mitigating controls, right? So you ask a very binary question, like, am I worried or am I not worried? I'm conscious that there is risk. Now, that the mitigating controls are, there are ways that you can limit the impact. Let's say if a camera joins a botnet, like Mirai style, the number of cameras that had like cheap, shitty chipsets in them <laughs> that end up as part of Mirai. When I look at the cameras that I have around the house, every single camera is pointed in a place where if it was to be public, it would not be too bad. And now what I mean by that is I have no cameras inside the house. It's definitely no cameras inside a bedroom, like a kid's room or something like that. I have cameras pointed like outside into areas you can observe. There's one camera in the back where our master bedroom is partly along the side just due to the only position I could really put it. Ubiquity gives you the ability to put like a privacy zone. So there is permanently imprinted on the video a great big block, uh, box rather. Uh, now, yes, if you could log into the Unify um, controller, you would be able to go through and remove the box. But if you just got like, you know, a month worth of video, you wouldn't see me walking past the window having first got up and not being very presentable. Let's just say that. So mitigating controls there. We can do things like VNets, of course, in that part three, I think it was, of the blog series, I wrote about VNets. I have everything on a separate SSID. I've been down the VNet path. It causes a heap of problems in different ways as well. But we can do that. It, it is a trade-off. There, there is risk and there is some reward from it. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I do do is I think pretty much every single IoT thing I've got in here is pretty mainstream reputable. It's I just sort of the one thing I have that isn't. <laughs> I got got an LED light strip fitted into a refurbished um, fountain uh, as part of the works we're doing in the house, uh, and I, I think that that is in the category. Of how much would I actually trust this thing? Um, so there's that risk. But then you know, as part of the mitigating controls as well, there's also things like this whole principle of zero trust. Like assume that everything on your network is going to be bad. When we come back to the or think back to the discussion I just had about the um, the one password series that we're doing and the first one there about the perimeter being dead, the, the concept of zero trust is becoming very popular as we say, look, not everything in your network is good. If you start to work on the assumption that everything is bad and let's say lock this PC down as though there are other bad things on the network, then you carry much less risk should something bad enter the network. Uh, there's a comment here saying, interesting that Shelley would keep their cloud central with her many devices covering all the time. You can use Shelley's cloud service. As soon as you enable MQTT, it disables that. And, and I'm actually quite okay disabling that. I don't feel a need for Shelley's cloud service. Um, what else is on here? Stuart. Brewdog did a beer called Paradox Islay. Imperial Stout matured in special selected uh, Islay malt whiskey cast. 13.8 tastes like you're drinking tree bark. A lot of these things that just get really, really heavy are not um, are not always great. So th this is th this one I was just talking about, the FA18. I'll drop it into the chat here for people that are interested. This is from Hope, Hope Brewery. Actually, I haven't tried that one. That's the, that is an IPA, four I's and a PA. Uh, 150 IBU, jeez. That is not the one I tried. I tried the, um, uh, was it? 
It was a dark one. I don't remember a lot about it. <laughs> Let's just say that. It was, uh, if I'd look, you know what, we'll do this. Hope Brewery 18%. That will find it. Ah, oh, here we go. Yeah. It was the Black Rhino Stout. There we go. Um, this is now a link through to Booze Bud, but you'll see the same thing. So that was the one I had, the Black Rhino Stout. I think I have sitting in there somewhere the other one. I just bought a variety of things the other day. But yes, not, not your everyday beer, not at all. Um, Robert says, uh, formerly the Zigbee Alliance, a bunch of companies getting together had to set a standard. So, okay, I didn't know the Zigbee Alliance was no longer the Zigbee Alliance. So that is, is my bad there. Uh, so when you say, have you looked into the matter standard? Obviously, no, because that term came as new to me. Lee says, I saw two year are going to be offering local mode rather than using their cloud. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. And I'm very excited about this. So one of the um, recent blog posts I wrote was about how messed up a whole bunch of stuff in IoT is. And this was largely due to two year. Now, in defense of two year, it's, it's not that their product is bad, but they make a product which, which you buy and you use as they intended it to be used. And I know that sounds like a kind of a trite thing to say, but they make a light and they go, hey, get this light and you plug it into the power and then you get the app and then you join the light to the network and then you can see the light in the app. And 99% of people who buy these lights are going to use it just that way. And then you get idiots like me who want to try and make it do something completely different, i.e. they want it to be controlled by a completely different home automation system such as Home Assistant. Now, in their defense, they really have no responsibility to do things like add local control. If they want to do everything through the cloud, then that's their prerogative. That's the product they sell. But I think, and I think most people that tinker in this world would agree with me, I think it makes things a lot better if you can have local control where you're not dependent on an external server, number one, for privacy reasons, number two, for latency reasons, number three, because if my network doesn't work, I still want my lights to work, you know, all of these things. Let's rephrase my network and say if my outbound internet connection doesn't work, I still want my lights to work. The, the thing is, is that all of the techniques that were available to try and get local control over two year are just different levels of shit. I have no nice way of putting it. Actually, that sounds harsh. There are people that put in a lot of effort to try and make things work locally, but everything was very hacky and very messy. And I sort of wrote through some of my, uh, my experiences in that blog post about trying to get stuff to work locally. And I said, look, what we really need is we need device manufacturers to say we would like, as the creator of the device, to make things work locally. We would like to have APIs we expose which would be stable that we can integrate into Home Assistant, into uh, HomeKit, into Google Home, into whatever your home thing is. Uh, I would like manufacturers to do that in a way that gives you the choice. I think that that would probably be in the manufacturer's best interest. So to, to Lee's question just here, uh, to you... The official two-year GitHub account, um, and I think I embedded this in the bottom, actually, of that blog post of mine. Official two-year uh, GitHub account is actually working on their own integration that will have local control. So I think last time I checked, the integration was available in beta. The beta, I don't believe, had local control, but they have indicated they will do it. Now, hopefully, they actually will, because it sounds really, really cool if they were to do that. Uh, but I am very excited about that because it is two-year. And, and there are some very, very smart other people out there who are not two-year 
that make two-year work with varying degrees of success locally. But I'm especially excited about the idea of two-year doing it because it just nails that point I was making in the in the blog post about manufacturers supporting local control as a first like a first class citizen of their product. Stratus says, I would set up my lights to turn on off by voice command, like in Demolition Man, illuminate to turn on and deluminate to turn off. Now it's in all seriousness, like I, I do have a bunch of that working with the watch. But you just end up with so many lights and so many different scenes and things like that. So I've tried to distill things down to a fairly simple set uh, and then make sure that those those automations and those scenes in Home Assistant then flow through to HomeKit. So there's an integration you can use to push to HomeKit because HomeKit integrates with Siri. Don't say anything, Siri, on my watch so that I can just pick the hand up and do this. Uh, I also flow those through to uh, my Amazon account because the kids both have little cheapy Amazon Alexas in their room and they like to ask Alexa to, yeah, uh, uh, for example, my son's got a ping pong table on his balcony. It's like, hey, uh, Alexa, turn on ping pong. And then the lights just get brighter so we can see the game and stuff like that. So I think that there's a good place for voice activated IoT that complements the other bits. But I... I saw a warning somewhere in Home Assistant today. It said, you've got more than 150 different entities or something. We can't put them all into HomeKit. There's too many. So the management of all of this stuff is still a bit messy too. James says, Capital Brewing Co. First Tracks is a very nice Imperial Stout if you're looking uh, for one to try. I always find an Imperial Stout is like a, a, it's an occasional beer, Imperial Stout. Hey, but I have Sonos playing when door is left open. Warning, door left open. Snakes, please come inside and make yourself a home. Makes kids pay more attention. Now, I like that. This is actually a really, really good example using Sonos for alerts. And I've been doing this as well uh, for quite some time. So I have, since let's combine the two worlds, I have an alert for when someone has left the door on the beer fridge open. Or if you've had the door open too long because you're stacking it full of beer. And there's one of these, it's, it's not this one in particular, but there's a, an Akira temp sensor in the fridge. It still works in the fridge. And when the temperature goes up, I just changed the day from six degrees to six and a half degrees. If it goes over six and a half degrees Celsius, uh, you get an alert audibly via the Sonos and I get a push notification on phone and watch. Uh, I get the same thing if we haven't closed the door into, it's like a carport door and the sun sets. Uh, which is fantastic. I get the same thing if the coffee machine has run out of water, uh, all broadcasting through the Sonos. So that that's the sort of stuff that really does add value. I, I think the leaving of the door open stuff in particular is really useful. Uh, JT on phone says, uh, oh, you can get Siri to talk to HA. That's cool. Well, what you're really doing is you're, you're creating a bridge between Home Assistant and HomeKit. So when I talk to Siri, ultimately she's talking to the HomeKit hub, which is my Apple TV, and that bridges through into Home Assistant. So I can ask her to turn on the scene, for example. Uh, so yeah, that, that is cool. What's less cool is I don't know why, but I just end up with absolute truckloads of devices and things in my list of devices in HomeKit. Like I'm just scrolling, 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 scrolling. And it is like there's a hundred different things and they're all on the front page. And I don't know why. <laughs> I just don't know why they're all there. So that that's that's less cool. 
Seven says, my door tells me it's been open for two mins, five mins, and then every five mins later, people, me, <laughs> shut the door by the third alert. Yeah, people do, do eventually tend to learn. Kojap, do you guys have internship programs in Have I, in Have I Been Pwned? It's, mate, it's just me. Like, it's me sitting here in my office. Um, so there, there's no guys. It's just one guy uh, and... No, but if you find some data floating around, then send me an email and I'll, I'll add it to Have I Been Pwned? I'd, I would love to think that I was in a position to have like internships or proper adult style management of <laughs> a service. It's just me sitting here loading data. All right, so look, I'm going to wrap it up there. That went a little bit longer than I, than I expected, which is fine, but I want to go watch, uh, watch Fast and the Furious, number nine. So I hope everyone's enjoyed this and you have a good weekend. And I'll come back next week. I'm going to come earlier in my day next week. Uh, and that will be just before I go on a new holiday too. I'm going to talk about that then. See you, folks.